Be warned, the tales on this podcast are dark, sometimes scary, and full of adult themes. Today's episode contains dramatizations of graphic violence, violence against women, animal cruelty, and some sexual content. Please exercise caution for listeners under 13. The queen was doomed to die. Strangely, this knowledge did not unsettle her. The moment she was sure of it, it became a fact no different from the knowledge that the sun would set. In fact, her time in the dungeon was the calmest she'd ever been. The gate opened, and Jafar, the king's most trusted vizier, entered, dragging an enormous scimitar behind him. He looked like a man who was about to throw up. The queen allowed herself a smirk. He was always a spineless papyrus pusher who had no stomach for the more unpleasant parts of ruling. His voice shook. My queen, you stand accused of adultery. Do you have anything to say before your sentence is carried out? The queen just scoffed. Where is that pathetic worm of a man, Shariar? Is he too much of a coward to see me killed? Or does my very face remind him how little his affections satisfied me? She put as much venom into the last question as possible so that Jafar would never forget it. Seeing the minister blanch was pleasing, even if in the half-light of the cell. But any joy she felt was stolen by his reply. I see no reason to lie to you. Uh, The king did not come here because he is busy making ready for his wedding. The queen was speechless. How dare her husband send her to the block for her indiscretions when he was making ready to marry before her body was cold? Fury overwhelmed her. She fought against her bonds, not believing her protestation would do any good, but wanting the vizier to know just how unjust it all was. Then, All those emotions, the outrage, the indignity, the utter hypocrisy, passed away in a swipe of the minister's sword. Jafar watched her head roll across the stones, her body twitching for a moment before laying still. It should probably be removed before the rats smelled the rapidly pooling blood. But he did not call for the guards right away. First, he wept, for he knew the violence had only just begun. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You're listening to Tales, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Wednesday, we explore the dark origins of classic fairy tales. We may have grown up on these stories, but few of us know just how twisted their original incarnations were. You can find all episodes of Tales and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're telling the story of Scheherazade, In this iconic Middle Eastern folktale, a young woman risks her life to save her homeland from a murderous tyrant. Although it may be more accurate to say we're telling the stories of Scheherazade because she has very, very many of them, and they are riveting, especially to her target audience. Coming up, we'll see what happens when a king is made to look like a fool. 
You've most likely heard of the famous book of folktales entitled 1001 Nights, or simply The Arabian Nights. We've retold many of these stories on this very podcast, such as Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, or Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp. But in the next couple of episodes, we're addressing the very heart of this work. After all, what is a story without its storyteller? To be clear, I'm not talking about Hana Diab, the man responsible for relaying the stories of Aladdin and Alibaba, or Antoine Galland, who brought the collection to Europe for the first time in the early 18th century. I'm talking about the storyteller within the pages of the book itself. See, no matter the translation, this anthology is always framed as a collection of stories told by a woman over the course of many years. Her name is Scheherazade, and she is the real protagonist of the Arabian Nights. Her stories are not just trivial and sometimes rambling entertainment. They're key to the survival of her kingdom. The years wore on Jafar like a wasting illness. He ate little and slept less. His duty as a vizier, which had once suited him perfectly, now felt like a curse. He bore his grief silently, but his eldest daughter saw it almost immediately. Though she was a sheltered young woman, very little escaped Scheherazade's notice. Still, she tried to respect her father's reticence. Until, late one night, she heard horrible retching noises coming from his room. She entered to find him bent over a basin, sallow-faced and sickly. She fetched him some tea and quietly, but pointedly, asked if there was anything else she could do to make him healthy again. Jafar shook his head sadly. There is nothing, child. Tomorrow I go before King Shariar, and he will have me killed for failing to do my duty. Scheherazade had heard rumors of the king's violent temper, but she had thought them to be just that, rumors. No king with so wise and kind a man as his vizier could be a tyrant. She asked, what could he have you executed for? Surely any failing can mean little next to your years of service. Jafar let a fond smile pull at the edges of his mouth. If only he had your wisdom. But he is not ruled by reason. You see, since our king was betrayed by his wife three long years ago, he has lost trust in women and been seized by a deadly passion. Every night since that day, he has taken a new wife to bed and has her executed the following morning. Almost a thousand wives, procured by myself in order to sate my master's lust for revenge. Scheherazade felt her breath leave her lungs. So the rumors had been true after all. She stammered, Father, how could you let such a thing happen? He gave a deep, broken-hearted sigh. I hoped that his first bride after the queen's death would make him see the folly of his plan, but it was not to be. He has become a monster, and now he'll kill me too. Jafar took a shaky breath and explained that tonight he'd failed to find Shariar a new wife. Rumors of the king's violent passion had finally scared every eligible virgin out of the kingdom. Scheherazade lowered her eyes. A strange feeling stirred in her gut. She said, Not everyone. Her father paled. 
I would never make you a sacrifice. You mean everything to me. Scheherazade's gaze was cold when she looked up. And what about the other women your king killed? What about the pain of their families? Is that nothing? She did feel the difficulty of her father's position, but his acquiescence was wrong. She felt the injustice deep in her bones. Here she was, a rich young woman who whiled away most of her hours reading fairy tales, while poor women her age were being sold into doomed marriage with a madman. This had to be stopped, all of it. Their deaths, her father's, and perhaps... She could be the one to do it. The wheels slowly spinning in her mind, she placed her hand on her father's shoulder and announced that he wouldn't die tonight. She would willingly give herself to the king. Jafar protested, but Scheherazade just shook her head. She had a plan, and whether it worked or not, she couldn't stand by and do nothing. She had to try. When her father left to begrudgingly carry the message to Shariar, Shahrazad's eyes drifted to one of the tapestries on the wall. She called out, You can come out now, Dunyazad. The tapestry shifted, and Shahrazad's sister stepped out sheepishly. She was a few years younger and just as clever as her older sister, though her wits were more often turned to mischief than study. Seeing her sister's watery eyes, Scheherazade spoke. I assume you heard everything. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to give myself up to certain death. In order for my plan to work, I need your help. The wedding came together faster than Scheherazade could have imagined. In only a handful of hours, she was clad in the finest garments she owned and brought to the palace with little ceremony. She noted dryly that if she was getting married once a day, she'd see little reason to pull out all the stops. She didn't know what she expected when she was brought before the king. Though she had read countless stories about them, she had little idea of what a murderer actually looked like. It would have been easier to take if he looked like some grotesque demon or a monster, but he was just a man. Average height with a well-groomed beard, a prominent gut, and some of the finest garments she'd ever laid eyes on. The only part of him that was truly monstrous were his eyes. She did not have the words to describe the mixture of desire and contempt that lurked there as he looked at her. It made her want to crawl out of her own skin, but she steeled herself. The plan had only just begun. The night proceeded exactly as she expected. They married, they feasted, and the king took her to his chambers for their wedding night. She looked to her father as she was led out of the banquet hall and tried her hardest to send a message with her expression, I'm going to fix this. Their encounter was a tedious affair. He felt like a man going through a choreographed routine rather than enjoying himself. Lying on her back, Scheherazade almost asked him why he even bothered if he was just going through the motions like this, but ultimately held her tongue, thinking of his apparently fragile ego. 
If she was to survive this marriage, she would have to choose her steps very carefully, much like playing her father in chess back when he had the time for such things. When Shariar was finished with his exertions for the night, Scheherazade asked for his permission to wash herself. She took this all-too-brief moment of privacy to muster her composure, and then ever so softly whispered through a crack in the wall, making sure the last of her pieces was in place before she went in for checkmate. She could not falter, not when her life, her father's life, and even her sister's were on the line. Scheherazade returned to find her husband sprawled carelessly across the bed, scratching himself. She put on her most distraught face and let out a wail. She saw the king almost fall off the bed in surprise. Before he could muster himself and assert his authority, she flung herself at his feet. Please, my lord, I know my life is forfeit, but will you grant this poor doomed woman a final request? She hoped that she wasn't overplaying this, but if the last hour was anything to judge by, Shariar wasn't the kind of man who could tell when a woman was faking her passion. When he spoke, he seemed almost like he actually cared about her anguish. You must calm down, my queen. There are almost a thousand minutes between now and the time of your execution. Whatever you wish, I will grant you. Scheherazade sniffed, holding a hand to her face to hide her grin of triumph. She said, I have a younger sister who will be completely lost without me. If you would be so kind, I would very much desire to say goodbye to her. The king waved his hand deferentially. It was an easy thing to grant. She needn't be hysterical about it. Scheherazade put two fingers in her mouth and whistled, piercing the silence of the night. At this signal, her plan truly set into motion. Dunyazad, who had been hiding in the adjacent hall, appeared at the doorway and threw her arms around her sister. They separated and stared deep into each other's eyes. A look of understanding passed between them. Then Dunyazad turned to face Shariar. She said, Dear sister, I haven't been able to sleep at all. Perhaps you can tell me a story to while away the night. Your stories always make the night seem short, and I shall so miss them when you're gone. Scheherazade turned to her husband, entreating him with a look. Where she expected to see skepticism, she saw his eyebrows knit, intrigued. He said, very well. I have had difficulty sleeping lately also. Perhaps a good story is just what I need. Just make sure it's an interesting one. I hate a boring tale. There was an edge to his words, but Scheherazade had come into this marriage ready for death, so she was unfazed. Do not worry, my liege. It is one of my favorites. Not boring at all. It's full of intrigue, death, betrayal, and magic. You won't be disappointed. His eyes narrowed. She licked her lips. I call this tale The Porter and the Three Ladies of Baghdad. The king folded his hands in his lap, but he didn't tell her to stop. So Scheherazade took a deep breath and began the tale, praying to Allah that it would not be her last. Coming up, we'll learn if a story can truly save a life. 
Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. There once was a porter in the city of Baghdad, a young man and unmarried. His name was Haydare, and he was not ambitious nor greedy. His pleasures were simple. He took joy in wine, parties, and good company. Experiences were far more valuable to him than any material goods. One day, this porter was sitting at his usual place on the docks, awaiting employment, when he saw a young lady walking by. She was dressed in fine clothes, but it was not the signs of wealth that perked his interest so. It was the way her gaze stuck on certain objects as they roved around the pier. She was, he could tell, someone who spoke little but saw much. And such a person, he knew, would always be worth knowing. So you can imagine his surprise when her gaze landed on him, and she asked if he desired employment. When he said yes, she beckoned for him to follow and turned on her heel. He did not need asking twice and was after her in a heartbeat. Together they traveled to the market, him carrying a basket she filled with a multitude of purchases, beautiful garments and jewelry, fruit, fresh olives, and casks of wine. The baskets grew so full that the porter's arms strained with the very effort of holding it aloft. Finally, they turned away from the market and towards the edge of the city, a place wholly unfamiliar to him. Silks dangling from his basket almost completely blocked Haydare's view, and he could see nothing besides the swaying skirts of his new employer in front of him. When they stopped, he very nearly bumped into her. She had brought him to a magnificent ebony doorway, plated with red gold. She knocked once and waited. A moment later, it opened, and the doorway was filled by another beautiful woman, slightly taller than the first and just as striking. She smiled. Come in, sister. Your porter looks liable to fall over. Haydare followed them into a cavernous hallway, draped with rich tapestries of silk and brocade. It opened up into a massive chamber, dominated by a similarly massive fountain. He had never felt more out of place in his life, like a rock in a bed of diamonds. On a couch before the fountain lounged a third woman, clad in a dress of indigo. She rose as they approached, letting out a yawn. It took you long enough, sister. I hope you brought everything. A moment later, her eyes landed on the porter. 
Who is this? Haydare set down his basket and bowed low. Just a mere porter who is honored to be in the presence of three such beautiful ladies. The youngest sister nodded approvingly. I like him. The eldest rolled her eyes. You like every man who gives you half a compliment. Excuse me, sister, that was a whole compliment. Doesn't make what I said any less true. The middle sister interjected, Are you two done? This banter is taking away from my valuable drinking time. The women broke open the casks and began to pour. Haydare stood by the doorway, shuffling his feet. He knew that he was expected to leave, take his money and go home, but there was a rule he lived by that very rarely steered him wrong. It was coined by his brother, and it said, When presented with a fork in your path, always choose the route that will give you the best story. The younger sister clearly noticed his dilemma, meeting his eyes from across a goblet of wine. She laughed and nodded to the cask as if to say, don't just stand there, grab a drink. He joined the sisters, but as he filled his cup, the youngest sister laid a hand upon his shoulder and said, you may stay, but he who asks about what concerns him not will get an answer that pleases him not. The porter gave his most winning smile. You have my utmost silence, my lady. I never question my good fortunes. The time flowed by in a river of wine, jokes, and feasting. The women introduced themselves. The eldest sister was named Jamila, the middle Farah, and the youngest who had brought him here was Ruhi. Haydare worried at first that their differing backgrounds would make conversing difficult, but as the night wore on, the barriers of wealth, class, and sex dissolved like dunes in a sandstorm. Haydare didn't quite remember how they wound up swimming in the fountain like it was a public bath, but there they were, Ruhi, Jamila, and himself, splashing about in the water like children, their clothes lying on the nearby sofa. Faro watched them from there, laughing at her naked companions, but making no move to join them. Haydare noticed this, but the thought completely left his mind when Ruhi wrapped her arms around his neck and pulled them both underwater, laughing all the way. But then, their frolicking was interrupted by a knocking at the door. Haydare stood and looked between the three sisters. Their blank looks told him that they were not expecting any visitors. The middle sister rose and said that she would answer it. She disappeared down the hall as the others struggled out of the fountain, the women wringing their hair and the porter trying his hardest to brush the moisture out of his beard. His eyes landed on a small plaque on the wall. On it was printed the same warning that Ruhi had given him some hours past. He who speaks of that which does not concern him Secrecy must be extremely important to them, Haydare thought. Then he remembered he still wasn't wearing trousers. A small group of figures rounded the corner, two men with heavy packs slung over their shoulders and three bald men in plain sackcloth. Each of these men were clean-shaven and missing a left eye. Adjusting her dress to best cover herself, Jamila stepped forward. She said, Gentlemen, greetings. To what do we owe this visit? One of the three bald men spoke. My two companions and I are colandars, 
Humble dervishes sworn to poverty, we heard the sounds of celebration coming from within your walls and wished to entreat you for hospitality. We were joined by these two merchants from Tiberias who had a similar desire. The sisters went to one side and began to talk among themselves. Haydar smiled nervously at the new guests, struggling to fit his wet feet into his shoes. The women broke their circle and returned to the group. They said that the five men could stay so long as they followed the mantra on the wall and not question anything that does not concern them. It was an easy promise to make, and soon everyone was sharing in the joy of the evening. The colandars played music well into the night until the wine was exhausted and the lamps upon the walls were lit. It was then that Jamila's face fell. She and her sisters rose and she spoke. It is time to do our duty, so if you gentlemen will excuse us. She beckoned to the porter, bidding him to join them. Haydare was on his feet in a moment, keeping his face as blank and incurious as possible. Jamila led him to an adjacent room, where two black dogs were chained to the wall. She bid him to bring one of them to the main chamber. The pitiful expression on the dog's face almost broke his heart, but he had been asked not to question these women, so he did not question them. When he had brought the dog out of the antechamber, he saw to his horror that Jamila had a whip in her hands. Before he had time to avert his eyes, she struck. The dog recoiled, whining desperately. The lady struck again and again. Haydare looked away, but with his hands on the chain, he could not cover his ears. When the lashing subsided, he turned back to see Jamila embracing the dog, kissing its injuries, and openly weeping. He looked to the other men. Their faces held the same horror he felt in his heart. The merchants were whispering between each other, one shaking his head most urgently. Jamila stood, breathing heavily. Bring out the other. Haydare did as he was asked though his hands were trembling the whole way. Like she had before, Jamila struck the animal countless times and then cuddled it, weeping. She took the dogs away and was gone. In her sister's absence, Ruhi took up a Persian harp and started playing. Farah responded to the music instantly, wailing and tearing at her clothes. Haydar took a step forward, only to be stopped by a look from Ruhi, a warning, the only one he was likely to receive. The back of Farah's dress split, separating along the ridges of her spine. Haydar stifled a gasp. Her back was crisscrossed with old scars, as if she had been whipped like the dogs many years ago. A few minutes later, the song had ended, and Ruhi took her distraught sister away, wrapping a robe around her shoulders. Haydar wanted more than anything to ask what compelled the ladies to do such things, but he held his tongue. The other men had no such hesitation and were already chattering amongst themselves. One of them, the taller of the two merchants, hissed at Haydar. Are you of this household? Tell us, what sort of women are these? Haydar shook his head. I have only been here but a few hours, and they made me swear not to ask, same as you. 
The men began talking urgently amongst themselves. Haydare rushed forward and tried to interject, but he could not get a word in. Consensus emerged swiftly from the group. They reasoned that there were five of them and only three of the women. They were in no real danger if they broke the promise they had made to their hosts. Worst of all, Haydare was unanimously chosen to deliver the question for them. The three women rejoined them, looking refreshed and cheerful, as if none of the strange and unpleasant events of the evening had occurred. They seemed about to introduce another chapter of the evening's entertainment, and Haydare wished they would, but he was gently pushed forward by a sharp point at the base of his spine. He coughed. Um, ladies, my friends want to know, why were you beating those dogs so savagely? And why does your sister have such wounds on her back? The mood in the room immediately evaporated as he said those words. The women's faces fell, and they all looked at him with shock. Ruhi's voice was a deadly whisper. Do you really want to know the answer? Haydare nodded. Farah rang a bell, and instantly the room was filled with seven burly men holding wickedly sharp scimitars. They surrounded the six guests, blades raised. Jamila spoke, Chain these gentlemen together. As cold metal fixed itself around their ankles and wrists, Ruhi said, You have all broken the vows you made upon entering this house. The punishment for such a breach of trust is death. Haydare's heart was beating in his chest. He wished he was still upon the docks or huddled up in his tiny hovel. Forget about his brother's rule about pursuing the best story. He preferred stories where the hero wasn't beheaded for succumbing to peer pressure. Ruhi continued, However, he who can tell us the most interesting story from their life will be spared. A silence fell over the group. Haydare held his breath. He was surely doomed. He had an interesting life, sure, but under such pressure, he could hardly remember his own name. It was then that one of the dervishes coughed politely. All eyes turned upon him. He met Ruhi's gaze with his one good eye. My name is Bilal. Before I assumed such a lowly state, I was a prince. My story is exceedingly strange. If it were written with a needle on the corner of an eye, it would yet serve as a lesson to those who seek wisdom. The other Kalandar spoke. It turns out they were all sons of illustrious kings, whose current state of poverty was caused by great misfortune and woe. Ruhi smiled, as if this was a challenge to her credulity. Very well. I shall hear your stories and determine which of you shall live. Haydare gulped. When she was finished with the Kalandars, she would likely turn her attention on him, and he was no prince's son. He held his tongue and listened as the first Kalandar began his tale, knowing that when these tales were finished, his life would be forfeit. Coming up, we'll hear how the first of these princes fell into disgrace. Now, back to the story. 
Prince Bilal's earliest memory was one of blood. He was just a child, holding a crossbow in his hand, learning how to hunt from his father. He still remembered the kick of the bow as the bolt went wide and buried itself in the eye of his father's vizier. The man fell to his knees with a scream, blood coursing through his fingers and onto the sand. The image was burned in his mind even as he grew to adulthood and assumed political responsibilities of his own. More often than not, that meant carrying messages from his father to the neighboring kingdom ruled by his uncle. He was thrilled to make this trip as it took him to the home of his cousin, Ismail, who was like a brother to him. But when he arrived, Ismail was nowhere to be found. Bilal's uncle seemed determined to avoid the subject as they ate together. All he would say was that his son was not feeling well and would not be joining them. As if to distract from the topic, the older king queried, "'Son of my brother, I beg you to grant me an urgent favor.'" Bilal accepted, and the king brought into the chamber a beautiful woman, perfumed and dressed in a radiant gown and finery. Bilal's uncle said, I need you to take her to a cemetery not far from here. She will show you the way. Bilal did as he was told, and he attempted to ask this mysterious woman what reason she could have for visiting a graveyard, but she remained silent for the entire trip. A chill crept up Bilal's spine when they reached the graveyard, a field of mounds and tombs rising from the earth like broken teeth but his companion wove her way through the graves, apparently unmoved, until they happened upon a tomb that dwarfed all the others. There stood Ismail, holding a basin of water, a bag, and an axe. Bilal rejoiced to see his cousin, saying, "'My dear Ismail, I have waited all day to speak with you.' Ismail's face was gloomy, and Bilal's manner did not stir even the hint of mirth. He set aside the basin and the bag and went to work on the tomb, removing the stones one by one. When he was finished, he stepped back from his work. He had uncovered an iron slab in the earth the size of a small door. He lifted it, revealing a vaulted staircase descending into the earth. The woman stepped forward and Ismail spoke to her, "'Time to make your choice.' She responded that she had, and without hesitation, descended into the tomb. Ismail took a shaky breath and turned to Bilal, "'Friend and kinsman, I need you to do something for me.' Bilal responded that he would do anything for him. At this, Ismail gave a wan smile and handed Bilal the axe. He said, this bag is full of plaster. When I descend this staircase, close the door behind me and rebuild the tomb as it was. Tell my father you have done what he told you to do, nothing more. Bilal objected, saying he could not bring himself to bury his oldest and closest friend, but Ismail would not be moved. And so he followed the other prince's instructions and reassembled the tomb as diligently as he could. When he was finished, you would never know it had been taken apart in the first place. He knew his cousin was grateful for this act, even if he could not fathom why. He told himself that Ismail knew what he was doing, 
but such excuses did not stave off the nightmares that plagued him afterward, dark, suffocating scenes where he saw himself buried beneath the earth. He awoke every night, stiff, sweaty, and screaming into the dark. Finally, after several weeks had passed, Bilal returned to the graveyard and searched high and low for the tomb he had built. There was no finding it. Each grave was as anonymous as the last, and all seemed to be at least a year old. He slept in the graveyard and for once did not dream of his cousin. But when he awoke, there were iron manacles around his wrists. Before him were not bandits, but soldiers, clad in the king's colors, and beside them was his uncle, an expression of disdain upon his face. Bilal cried, What is the meaning of this? His uncle said, Your father's rule is no more. He was usurped by his own vizier and beheaded while you were out here playing amongst tombs. And now the vizier demands that I return you for execution. Bilal protested, pleading for protection, but his uncle shook his head. If he did not honor this deal, the newly crowned king would start a war. No family member was worth the bloodshed and expense. Bilal stood as best he could and said with an air of proud defiance, I suppose I should not expect more from a father who had his own son buried alive. A dagger lashed out from his uncle's belt and buried itself in Bilal's left eye. The prince screamed as the king twisted the blade. The older man said, I forgot to mention, the vizier was adamant that you be sent back blinded. Penance for the eye you took from him. Bilal's mind was almost blank from the pain, but some faint part of him realized that in stabbing out his eye, his uncle had stepped within kicking range. Bilal lashed out with his foot, striking the fork of his uncle's legs. The man released his dagger and doubled over in pain, giving Bilal the opportunity he needed to pull at his restraints. The ancient grave marker he had been chained to gave way like sandstone, and the prince was free, tearing through the tombs as fast as his legs could carry him. One of the guards lunged at him as he ran past, but his sword got entangled in Bilal's chains, and the prince ripped it from the man's grasp. He had to think. His uncle would expect him to flee outward into the city, so they would be surrounding the graveyard. However, they would not anticipate him going even deeper amongst the tombs. The hours he had spent searching for his cousin's resting place gave him the edge he needed. He was able to weave in and out of the massive stone structures to elude the palace guards. And then he found it. The plaster structure he had built weeks ago at the very center of the graveyard. With no time to lose, he set to work using the stolen scimitar to pry the stones loose and throw them to the earth. Then he slipped into the dark. Bilal descended the stairs carefully, feeling his way with his hands. It was like he had entered one of his nightmares. Blood still trickled from his mangled eye socket and down his chin. It felt like tears, but he was beyond crying. If he no longer had a kingdom, at the very least, he could have answers. 
A distant golden light appeared before him, and as he approached it, it grew to fill his vision. He had entered a lavish stone chamber full of grain and flour. At the center of this chamber was a curtained bed, and upon it were two figures, arms wrapped around each other. Their skin was as black as charcoal and cracked as if the two of them had been thrown together into a fire. Bilal placed a hand over his mouth in horror. Then he heard a voice behind him. So that is what became of him, it said. Bilal whirled around to see his uncle and the palace guards filing into the chamber. Tears swirled in the old man's eyes, and his bloody dagger dropped through his suddenly limp fingers. She was my daughter from an earlier marriage, Ismail's half-sister. I forbade them to see each other since they were children, but they could not be separated. I had you show her this graveyard to scare her, nothing more. I did not expect they would go to the grave together. Forgive me, I blamed you for their disappearance. I will not send you to your death. Go freely and never return. Bilal gave a short bow and made his way back to the stairs. He cast one final gaze over his shoulder at the scene and watched his uncle climb into bed with his burned, incestuous children, weeping like a baby. Bilal did not know what became of them after that. For his part, he shaved his hair and beard and took up the mantle of a kalandar, an ascetic dervish. In this disguise, he slipped away from the armies searching for him and made his way to Baghdad, where many months later, he found himself the prisoner of three enigmatic ladies. And thus, he told his story in an effort to gain their mercy. Dawn was breaking through the eastern window of King Shariar's chamber. Scheherazade noticed this just as she was finishing the tale of Prince Bilal. She let out a deep sigh and sank onto a cushion. Both her sister Dunyazad and King Shariar looked on in shock. Dunyazad was about to speak, but Shariar interrupted her. You can't stop there. What about the other men's stories? Will the porter ever learn why these women behave so strangely? Scheherazade sighed. I am too tired to finish this story. Perhaps if you postpone my execution by a day, I will tell you how it ends. Dunyazad looked at the king, her heart pounding in her chest. She hoped that her veil hid her anxiety. The king sat back and stroked his beard. Then he spoke. Very well. One more night. Join us next week as Scheherazade finishes her stories and the king decides whether she lives or dies. Thanks for listening to Tales. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Tales and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Join me next week for another dark and surprising fairy tale.
Tales is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Tales was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Adam De Silva and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.